Hey, good morning. Uh, so good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Um, man, if you're here and maybe, uh, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or you were dragged here by a friend and you're not really sure why you're here, thanks for being here. We're, we're thankful that you're with us. And I, I, I get it. It probably takes a lot of boldness to come back into a church after being out of church for a while. So thanks for being with us. Um, I, I'm also aware that when you go from wearing shorts and a t-shirt on Friday afternoon to dress like I am today, uh, it, it just does something to your heart, doesn't it? Am I the only one that, like, I, I walk outside and I'm like, why am I cranky? Why am I sad? Why am I, you know, and the list goes on. And I just, while we were singing together and as, as you guys were walking into our service uh, around 9.15, uh, while you guys were coming in, uh, I, I started to just sense in your heart and in my heart that there's some, there's some weight. There's, you know, the cold weather has somehow attached itself to our heart and it, there's a fog, and so I just want to take a minute and pray into that and ask that God would really help us lift our eyes out of our own lives, out of our own tiredness, out of our own grogginess, out of the coldness in our heart that we could really set our eyes on Jesus today. Does that sound okay? Okay, great. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for, for just the gift of, of the Holy Spirit who brings life and vibrancy and fullness, and we pray today, Holy Spirit, would you fill us uh, even my friends that don't even believe in you, would you fill them with the power and presence of the Spirit? God, I pray today that you would draw us close, that you would lift up our hearts. And we just confess that this morning we feel tiredness, this morning we feel cranky, we feel uh, cold in our hearts, there's fog, and we're not really sure even, even where we are with you today. And I pray that before we take another inch forward, would you just pierce through all of that? Thank you that your word is powerful that it can actually pierce through the, the joints and the marrow and all the, all the even brokenness in our souls. So today, we just, as much as we know how to do, we open up our hearts to you, and we pray that you would warm us with the love of Jesus today. So come and move in power. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Hosea chapter 4. Let me say this, if you don't know where Hosea is, it is very hard to find. Uh, it's funny even watching some of our pastors like try to figure out where the book is. Uh, I know that's been me, so here's the best way to do it. Go to the table of contents, get the page number, and today we're going to be in Hosea chapter 4. If you're just joining us, or maybe you forgot everything that has happened in the last seven days, let me just kind of sum up what's been happening in this book. This is a story about a marriage it's about a broken marriage between a, a man named Hosea, who is a prophet of God, who is commanded by God to love this woman named Gomer, who is this unfaithful wife. So he pursues her and he loves her, but no matter how much he loves her, she continues to leave and run after other lovers. She's unfaithful again and again and again. And despite her unfaithfulness, you know, they've had kids together and still she leaves. What Hosea does is incredible. He continues to chase her down. He continues to love her. And there's nothing that Gomer has done that could ever stop Hosea's pursuit of his bride. No matter how unfaithful, no matter how many times she commits adultery, he's bringing her back and he's loving her and he wants her in the marriage. And, and here's the, the greater picture of this story. That's a real story. That Hosea is a real guy that really lived in the 8th century BC. Gomer's a real woman. But the bigger story that's being painted to us is that this is kind of a real-life allegory of how God feels about his people. And we are Gomer. We are unfaithful towards God, that we leave time and time again running after other lovers, other false gods. We set our worship on other things. And time after time, he comes after us and he pursues us. And what we looked at last week in Hosea 3 was that there's nothing that you have done 
nothing that you could do to ever separate yourself from the love of God. You couldn't do any type of sin or, or live a certain way that would ever separate you from his love. You are always eligible to receive the love of God. If you have sin in your life and brokenness, that just makes you all the more eligible to receive his mercy and his grace. So we are Gomer. That's what we looked at last week. But Jesus, he's the better Hosea. Now, that's the first three chapters. It's a romance. And if you're anything like me, when you get to chapter four, you're just kind of confused. Why is there a chapter four? The story should be done by now, right? That's a great story. This is how I expect it to end in chapter three. And they lived happily ever after the end, right? She was unfaithful. Gomer left time and again, but Hosea, he was so faithful and he loved her and they finally worked out their marital issues and they lived happily ever after. Great story, let's go to lunch. That's how we want the story to end, right? Chapter three, great, beautiful, we're done. But here's the reality, we have 11 chapters to go. And what happens in chapter four is a dramatic shift and it'll startle you, it'll, it'll take you off guard because everyone loves this book of Hosea because they only think it has three chapters. But I'm telling you, chapter four, things get real. Things get difficult, they even get a little painful for us. Chapters one through three, that's the romance. You know what chapter four is? Marriage counseling, right? So we've had the romance, but any time in a relationship when there's uh, a sexual unfaithfulness or adultery or whatever, any time there's that type of, of devastation that enters a marriage, what inevitably has to happen if the marriage is going to survive is a continued process of, hey, why did you even do this? And what happened? And why were you running to that woman or that man? And let's, let's put this back together and let's go to counseling. And it's going to take a long time. Chapter four and the rest of the book, it's marriage counseling. God wants to pull us in, and here's what he's saying. Yeah, I love you, and I've forgiven you, and I've chased you down, and I've brought you back, but now let's dig in together and figure out what is at the, the bottom of your spiritual chronic adultery. Why do you keep leaving me for other gods? That's what's about to happen. So um, chapter four, this is where things get intense, and let me just say it like this. It's a type of love that our culture does not like to receive. Chapters one through three, it's, it's romantic love, but the type of love that we're going to read about and look at today is a painful love. And it's not a category that people in our culture have when they think of love. So uh, how does our culture envision love? How do you envision love? When you think of what is really loving and how to really love someone, uh, wh what do you think that looks like? I, uh, I consulted the, the tomes of wisdom found in Twitter to find out how people in our culture think of love. So let me just give you a couple examples. Love is, hashtag, a good morning kiss. Love is your husband laying out your PJs on the, night, on, on the night you get home really late so that you can slip into bed faster. That's a great idea. That's the definition of love for that person. Love is holding each other, watching TV, while sipping a hot cup of coffee. Some of you are like, I wish I was doing that right now, but instead I'm at church, right? Here's, here's another one. Love is when one delivers happiness to another. There were dozens and dozens that sounded just like that. Love is about giving more than receiving. It's about making people happy and being content with seeing them happy. Here's another one. Love is me watching a movie on my 58-inch screen with my bae laying on my chest. If you don't know what bae is, consult your child, right? They will tell you. Uh, love is, I love this one, I had to include it, food. 
Buy me food, make me food, be food. If music be the food of love, play on. Food is bay, right? So this person is like me. They just love food. Uh, and, then, and then here's one that I, I have no idea what it means, but I had to include it because I was like, that's, that's weird. Uh, love is finding anything you can hook up with the energy that creates worlds. All right, so no pressure. Just find whatever is going to create worlds and connect to that energy. That doesn't sound terrifying at all. Um, that's culture's definition of love. And I, I scrolled probably for far too long on Twitter looking at how do people think of love. And this is it. It's warm, fuzzy feelings. Deliver happiness to me. Don't make me feel sad. Do sweet things uh, that serve me. Think of me. This is love. Love is this thing that I just, I care for you and I do really beautiful things for you. Ironically, here's what I didn't find on Twitter. I didn't find anything that said this. Love is confronting someone and the middle of their sin. Love is saying the hard thing that the person in your life does not want to hear, but needs to. I didn't find this on Twitter. Love is organizing an intervention for someone in your life that is spiraling out of control. See, that's a different kind of love. There's a type of love that happens in a romance, and that's beautiful, right? But by the way, that love can't, you know, maintain over the course of a marriage like it does in the first, you know, three months of dating. Can you imagine if every time you got a text, like, it's butterflies, and every time you saw this, oh, my, you know, like, you couldn't sustain that type of romance. Eventually, what happens in a marriage, if you really love the person, is you're going to go to marriage counseling, because you want to work through your junk and their junk so that you can better actually love each other. And what's going to happen in that confrontation is there's going to be times where you have to bring up sin and hurt and brokenness, and you've done this, and this has happened, and let's deal with that. Not because I don't love you. It's because I love you. Love sometimes will even create an intervention. See, our culture has two wrong ways that they love to love. Two wrong ways. Um, one is with more of a secular culture, and it's what I just want to call blind acceptance. Blind acceptance says, I don't care what you do. I don't care what choices you make. I don't care how you want to identify yourself. You do you as long as you're not hurting anyone else. I'm going to blindly accept you. That's a broken way to love. Here's another way that's a broken way to love, and this is what you often find in traditional cultures, uh, like what we have oftentimes in Oklahoma, and it's just harsh rejection. Oh, you do the wrong thing? Because I love you, I'm cutting you out of my life. Harsh rejection. If you make a wrong decision, if you do something bad, if you do something that I disagree with, you're out. I'm done. I'm not going to engage the relationship anymore. Blind acceptance, harsh rejection. Those are really broken ways to treat people. And here's what is happening in Hosea 4 that we're about to see. God is unwilling to do either one of those, those two things with us. He is unwilling to just blindly accept us and he's unwilling to harshly reject us. Here's what God is going to do for us today. He's going to say, I love you no matter what. I'll always love you. There's nothing you've ever done to, to change my affection for you. And because I really love you, this is wrong. And you cannot keep living this way. You have to stop. You've got to wake up. You've got to see that's what's happening in Hosea 4. It's a different side of love. This is part two of last week. So if you missed last week, get on the podcast. Um, last week is all about the unconditional love of God. This week is about that love being willing to take us to task when we need him to. So without further ado, let's, let's look at it. Hosea chapter 4, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy 
with the inhabitants of the land. That's not something you want to hear God say. I have a controversy with you. I've got issues that I need to deal with, right? The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. What's his controversy? There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Let's just stop there. This is what I want to call the intervention. The intervention. Have you ever had to do an intervention for someone in your life? Maybe a loved one, maybe a family member, maybe a friend. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of an intervention, but if you've ever had to do an intervention, they're really painful, but they're really beautiful when they go well. Uh, As a pastor, I've had to be a part of interventions. I get pulled into uh, sometimes interventions that people are hosting, and here's what happens. You know this. Um, There's one person that isn't sober and isn't aware of their decisions and what they're doing, and, and they're kind of making these really devastating, broken decisions that are leading them into a really dangerous place, and they don't even see it. They're not even aware. If they do see it, they, they don't care. They don't think it's that, that big of a deal. So what usually happens in, a, in an intervention is a bunch of sober people that love this person get together, and they intervene, and they, they lay out all the junk, and they sit them down, and they say, you've got to look at this. You're, you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and, and, and you've got to pay attention. You are really messing your life up, and it's not because we hate you that we're telling you this. It's because we love you. It's because we want you to be okay, so we're intervening in this moment. Now, inter- interventions usually go one of two ways. The, 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 the way you hope them to go is that the person humbly sees what they're doing as wrong, They embrace it, and they go, man, you're right. They humble themselves, and they get the help that they need to get. The other way that interventions go, and I've seen this happen, is when the person just is flabbergasted that you would have the gall to sit down with them and say the things that you would say and and, and all the ways that you misunderstand and you don't see right, and then it's deflection, and it's denial, and 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 then the intervention just goes poorly where the person who is not sober walks out the same way, refusing to humble themselves, refusing to get help. This is what God is doing for humanity in Hosea chapter 4. He's hosting an intervention. But here's the big difference in Hosea 4. God is the only sober one in the room. He's the only sober one. And here we all are as humans, and we don't see ourselves rightly, and we've got this tendency to deflect and deny and make excuses, and well, it's not really that bad, or it looks worse than it is, or whatever. And God is the only sober person in the room. He sits us down, and he goes, you've got to look at what's really going on beneath the surface. You've got to pay attention. Here's my controversy with you. Here's all the things, and it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you but I'm going to have this conversation. So the big question for you that you need to wrestle with today as we continue on in this sermon, how are you going to respond? Are you going to humble yourself, get the help that you need to get, recognize what God is saying is true, or are you going to deny, deflect, pretend that it's really not as bad as it looks? So what is, what is God's controversy? Here's the intervention that he's hosting for humanity. What is his actual controversy with his people Well, there's two things that he brings up, two main categories. Here's the first one. There's something missing in their lives that shouldn't be missing. Look again at the very end of chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Here's what God is saying. He's saying there's no faithfulness. In other words, you guys go to, to the temple. He's talking to the people of Israel. You go to the temple, 
and you bring these sacrifices and you confess your sins to these priests and you make these sacrifices and, and, and you, you say you're sorry and you say that you don't ever want to do it again and then you walk out of the temple and the very thing that you brought a sacrifice for, you continue to do in your life. You, you show up to the temple, he says, and there's no steadfast love because you sing these songs to me you talk about the love and the desire and the affection and, and you make much of me in song with your words, but when you leave, your heart is far from me and you don't, by the way your life appears and by the way it actually plays out, you don't desire me. You don't want me. You're, you're not after me. You're not chasing me. He says there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. You sing songs, you confess sins, and then you go out and do the very same thing, showing that you really don't delight in me. And then he says there's no knowledge of God in the land. And by the way, what he means by that is not that there's no data that they don't know about God. He's not saying you don't know any facts about me or you don't know Bible verses. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's no relational knowledge of me. And in, in other words, he's saying that's all you know about me is just data and facts and Bible verses. But you don't know me. You don't actually know me in a relational, intimate way, the way that I intended this thing to play out. So God is saying there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. He's looking at his people and he's like, yeah, the way that, the, it's like the way that we know Russell Westbrook is the way that the people of Israel knew God. We can say facts about him, we can say some data, we can say some cool stuff, but at the end of the day, most of us probably don't know Russell Westbrook, right? We don't actually know him, and that's what God is saying. He's saying, you don't know me. This is what's missing in your life. Now, can I just ask you that question, this question? Does any of those things sound familiar for your life? Any of them? There's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God. Are you guilty of coming in here, confessing sin, saying, God, I'm sorry, I did this and it was wrong and I don't want to do it anymore, and then you leave and you do it again and again and again? Are you ever guilty of being in this room and singing songs, you're never going to let us down. You are our anchor. We want you to be the wind in our sails. We love you and we treasure you and you're, you're what we want. And then you leave and it would appear that money is what you want or success is what you want or this relationship is really what you want or that thing or what, and what you really want is other versions of gods that you've created in your own power. God is saying there's no steadfast love. And then he says there's no knowledge of God. In other words, he's, he's saying, hey, people in Oklahoma, right, you might know data and Bible verses, and maybe you went to Awana growing up in church. Some of you don't even know what that is, but if you went to Awana growing up in church, it's like you know all the stuff about me, but there's no intimate relational knowledge. There's no connection. You don't know me. If that sounds familiar, it sounds familiar to me in my own heart. This is God taking us to task, saying there's some stuff missing in your life that shouldn't be missing. There's no steadfast love, no faithfulness, no knowledge of God. And I have issue with that. That's not okay. There's another thing he says, the second category. First category, there's some stuff missing that shouldn't be missing. Second category, there's some stuff present in your life that shouldn't be present. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 2 said there's no faithfulness, steadfast love, knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now, here's what I know about myself and probably about you is when you read a list like that, most of those things on the list don't ding you at all. It's like, no, there's no 
ding in your heart, like, yeah, I do that, or there's nothing that kind of, you read that, and it's like, yeah, there are people out there somewhere that do these things. So let me slow down for just a minute, and let's walk through this, because I think that actually God is not just taking people in the 8th century B.C. to task. I think God is actually taking you and I to task out of love today, saying, hey, there's some things missing that shouldn't be missing, but there's also some stuff in your life present that really shouldn't be there. And I think that you'll see your own life played out in some of the things that he mentioned. So let's walk through it. He says there's swearing. Now some of you, when you think swearing, it's like, like a sailor swearing, right? That's not what he's talking about. In fact, the Hebrew word here is cursing. And again, you might think, well, that's, you know, saying cuss words or something. But the idea of cursing uh, might help you to understand the Hebrew idea behind cursing. The, the polar opposite of that is blessing. When you bless someone, you speak the intentions of God over that person's life. You speak a good word to that person. The word blessing actually comes from uh, the word where we get uh, eulogy. Eulogia is the, the word, but eulogy is where we get that word. So imagine at a funeral where you stand up and you speak highly of a person and you bless that person. Cursing is the opposite of that. Cursing is instead of speaking the good intentions of God over a person, it's where you say destructive things. You say harmful things. You say things out of, out of anger, or out of hatred that damage a person right? God is saying there is, there's cursing, there's swearing, there's, there's something that happens where you open up your mouth and instead of it being blessing towards people, it's harsh and it's judgmental and it's critical and, and it's breaking down communal relationships. John Ortberg, he gives a, a really helpful definition of, of what this could look like. He says, I used to think that cursing someone meant swearing at them, putting a hex on them. So it was pretty easy to avoid because I did not swear much or do hexes but I realized how wrong I had been. You can curse someone with an eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I've seen a husband curse a wife by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. This is not about people in the 8th century BC only. Where do we do this? There's cursing. He goes on to say there's lying. Now, perhaps you're like, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, of course we all lie a little bit, but this isn't like a problem for me. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever, have you ever fudged on your taxes just to save a little bit, make a little bit of money? Have you ever created a false story about why you relate to work or why you can't do something? Well, I can't do that because lie. Have you ever provided false information on a report at work just to make you look better or said that you completed a job that you didn't do? Have you ever stretched the truth while telling stories to your friends just so that you would look a little bit better to them? I've done all of those things, right? Chances are you have too. The taxes thing, I don't think I did intentionally, by the way, if you're curious, right? I think I had a bad CPA, so he kind of aided in that process. Um, So there's lying. He goes on to say this. He says there's murder. Now, most of you haven't done that in the room. I'll let you figure out who the ones that have done that. I'm just kidding, right? No, I don't know of anybody that's done that, um, but let me just remind you of, of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, and, and these are some of the most misquoted, misunderstood words uh, that I've ever heard. People think that Jesus says, if you have hatred for someone, you're guilty of, of the same type of thing that a murderer is guilty of. That's not what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, towards a sister, Does anyone do that? If you have anger in your heart towards a brother or a sister, you're guilty of the same type of thing that leads to a a person to take a life. There's murder. 
in our hearts. There's stealing. I don't need to unpack that. You get that one. There is adultery. Again, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. He's not just talking about um, actual committing adultery, breaking a a marriage by sleeping with someone that you're not married to. What he's talking about is, in, in Matthew 5, even if you look at another person with lust in your heart, there is adultery that's occurred in your heart so when you read this list it's like there's there's cursing and there's lying and there's 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 stealing and there's murder and there's committing adultery there's all these things this is a list that describes what's in our heart this is in us and what God is doing in Hosea 4 is saying I love you I'm never going to stop loving you I'll never stop pursuing you and now we're going to go to marriage counseling here's the intervention I'm sitting you down there are things missing in your life that should not be missing there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love. There's, 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 there's no uh, knowledge of God. And there's some th- things present in your life that should not be present. There's all these things that he lists out. Now, here, here's what I want you to wrestle with for just a second. What are the ramifications of our sin? And because I know the temptation in this moment is to go, yeah, but none of that's a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't have any effect on anyone else. And I just want to say that what he is about to do, again, as the only sober one in the room, is to show us how deeply your sin and my sin actually does affect those around us and has massive ramifications. Look at what he says in um, Hosea 4, verse 3. Look at this. Therefore, so there's all these things wrong. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Now when you read that, you go, I, I don't really know what he's talking about and, and I don't know how my lying or my stealing or my stretching the truth here or whatever, I don't know how that can actually take away the fish and the sea. Like I don't see the connection. Well, he's using some poetic language and here's what he's doing. He's trying to show you that when you sin in these ways and when this stuff is missing with you and God, when relationally you and God are off and now there's all this brokenness in your soul that affects those kind of horizontally in your life, when that happens, it has massive ramifications and it starts to actually bring chaos and destruction into the very created order that God designed. Did you notice, maybe, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, that in Hosea 4.3, it's the polar opposite of what God said when he created humans in Genesis 1. Let me read Genesis 1 to you. Here's what he said. 128, and God blessed them, humanity, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That land, fill the land. And then he says this, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is saying, when you have a right relationship with me and a right relationship with those in your life, the the world itself is actually going to flourish. It's going to thrive. It's going to go the way that I intended it. But what he's saying in Hosea 4.3 is, you've actually failed at the very reason why I made you. I made you to live in a right relationship with me that would have beautiful ramifications for the world around you. But what you're doing is it's actually the land is mourning you and the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, they're all taken away. You are bringing chaos and destruction, not just in your own soul, but in the world around you. That's weighty stuff. God is saying, There's such profound brokenness, such stuff in your life missing and stuff present that shouldn't be present. It is a big deal. It's not just affecting you. Don't believe that lie. It is affecting the world around you. So I just want to ask you the question, what is really wrong with our world? 
what is really wrong with our world? Is it racism? Maybe you see this image and you think, yeah, that's, that's what's wrong with the world. If we could fix it, that's what we need to do. Is it sexual misconduct? Is that what's really wrong with the world? These are images of people that have uh, been accused of sexual misconduct. The Me Too movement. I mean, is, is this what's really wrong with the world? Is it the political scene? If we just had better leaders, if, if the Republicans weren't so dumb, or if the Democrats could get their stuff in order, or whatever, then the world would be a better place. Is it violence in America? Is that what's really wrong with the world? Violence. If people could, you know, stop playing all those violent video games and having violent actions, the world would be a better place. Is it terrorism? Is terrorism the thing that's wrong with the world? And those things, I think, are aiding a lot of the brokenness that we see in the world. But let me answer the question of what's wrong in the world this way. Um, once there was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He was a, uh, an author and a thinker. And uh, a British newspaper basically posed the same question. What is really wrong with the world? And he wrote a letter answering the question. And he sent it in. And here's what the letter said. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's really wrong with the world? You are. I am. It's in here. All that other stuff, it exists because it exists in here. God, as the only sober one in the room, sits us down and he says, I love you. I'll never stop loving you. I'm always gonna pursue you. But you have some serious stuff going on. You're unfaithful. You lack steadfast love for me. There's no knowledge of me in your life. And there's all these other things that you've gotten really comfortable with. Sins that you've cozied up next to. And you keep leaving and you keep leaving and you keep leaving and you keep leaving and you keep leaving. And it has got to stop. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? Some of you are like, wow, Hosea is no longer my favorite book. I loved that romance for the first three chapters. The next 11 chapters is a lot of this. So I'm not going to dig into detail and apply and go in, figure out all the ways that this is true of us, but God is taking us to task out of love. It's an intervention. Here's the good news. It's not just an intervention. Every time God does an intervention for someone, every time he sits them down and he says something hard to them, there's also this other thing that's happening there's an invitation. It's an intervention, but here's the invitation. And to show you what that is, I'm actually gonna take you to Hosea 6, verse one. And I'm not gonna unpack this in great detail because we're gonna look more at this next week. We're actually gonna have Pastor Josh with us live preaching to us, and he's gonna unpack more of this for you. But, but let, me, let me just kind of give you the initial invitation from God. If you feel the weight of all that I just said, and by the way, I feel the weight of all that I just said. I feel it in my soul. What is God's invitation to us? Here it is, Hosea 6.1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. God's invitation is return to me. In fact, the, the word repentance literally means to turn to the Lord, to turn around. Come, let us return to the Lord. God is sitting us down. He's saying hard things, not to leave us crushed, 
But like any intervention, he wants to heal us. Like any intervention, he wants us to become sober again. So he sits us down. Here's the invitation. I want you to repent. How do we do that? What does that mean? Well, let me just define repentance for you. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. In Oklahoma, we treat repentance like the flu shot. I've done that. You can't do that with repentance. If you're a Christian, this is the way of life that we live. And the invitation today from God is discover the evil of your sin and mourn it. And have this deep inward change that only the Spirit of God can do. Here's another definition, J.I. Packer. I found this really helpful. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. You see, you can't listen to the sermon through the lens of, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. This is a sermon for you, not for so-and-so. And and you can't weep and be broken over the culture of our world until you start to weep and be broken over the culture of your own heart. It's in here first. And so as these things start to surface and as you start to realize what's in you and as that rises, it's, it's grabbing a hold of that. As much as you know of that, And as much as you know of yourself and as much as you know of God, and it's bringing all of that to him and asking for his help. That's what repentance is. And that's what he's doing in chapter four. So here's what I want you to do. Let's go ahead and stand. Would you stand with me? I want to ask the question, where do we go from here? Instead of getting really practical, I want to just give you some questions that over the next few weeks I think are going to help shape you and help, help you process what's inside of your own soul that hopefully the Lord is going to start to lovingly bring out and bring to the surface. So um, if you would, this isn't too weird for you, just take a second and close your eyes. Don't think about anybody else in this moment. Don't think about your spouse or your friend or whatever. Think about you and your own heart. Where do we go from here? Well, here's the first thing I want to ask you. What is missing in your life that should not be missing? For the people of Israel, there is no faithfulness, there is no steadfast love, there is no knowledge of God. Maybe those three words sum it up perfectly for you. What is missing in your life that should not be missing? Here's the second thing. What is present in your life that should not be present? What's there that shouldn't be there? your answers to those questions are going to start to open up the pathway of repentance. Here's the second thing. If God is highlighting a specific area of sin in your life today, I want you to ask yourself, what would it really look like if I repented of that specific sin? What would it really look like if I repented of that specific sin? not just said sorry, what would it really look like if I repented? Your answer to that question is gonna start opening up the door for what God is inviting you to do. 
Here's the third thing. I want you to recognize the tactics of the enemy that often keep us from repenting. Tactic number one, before you sin, hey, it's no big deal, everybody sins. Everybody sins. God's a really merciful, gracious God. He's a forgiving God. It's no big deal. If you sin, he will just forgive you. And then you sin. Now here's his tactic after you sin. How dare you? How dare you? He could never take you back now. You've spurned his grace. You willingly did the thing that you knew he didn't want you to do. He can't forgive that. You're too far gone. Repentance isn't even an option for you. I want you to recognize the tactics of the enemy that are at play because some of you, you're hearing that voice in you right now. And then last thing, and I want you to look up at the screen for this one because I want to show you this. I want you to lean into the loving discipline of God for you today. I want you to lean in. Will you you just grab a hold of this? That all that God is doing in this moment right now is he's bringing up stuff that shouldn't be there, stuff that is there, stuff that's missing. As he's bringing all of that up and you're processing it, he is loving you right now. And in fact, if you don't sense any of that stuff happening in your soul, I'd be really worried for you. Here's why. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, verse 5, and just read this on the screen. I'll, I'll read it over you. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, what? He disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It feels painful, doesn't it? But it will lead to pleasure. It will lead to holiness. It will lead to experiencing more of the intimacy and relational knowledge of God today. Here's the good news, and I'll close with this. In bringing up your sin, God is not crushing you, and he is not punishing you, because on the cross, Jesus took every ounce of that punishment that we deserved. The body of Jesus that was broken for you and I, There's no more punishment for us. There's only loving discipline from a loving father. The blood of Jesus was shed so that we could be forgiven. God in this moment is not withholding forgiveness until we get our act together. He has already forgiven us. 